This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What's good, y'all? You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby, and today on the show, we're talking about the turning of the seasons. I have always been a summer girl. Born and raised in California, I love the heat. I love swimming pools and popsicles and long nights. And I think for the first time in my life, I am becoming a fall person. That voice that we're all hearing right now belongs to... Ada Limon, and I am a poet. So Ada is being modest because she's actually America's poet. She's the Poet Laureate of the United States, the first Latina ever so named. But we're going to come back to all that, I promise. Anyway, Ada told me that she's in a new, different season in her life right now. I'm always someone who likes a lot of light. And I, that's what I love about the summer. Give me all the hours. Give me all the hours. And, you know, I had a lot of loss this summer. My uh, father-in-law passed away, who I write about quite a bit. And so I've never thought of it this way, but the darkness that fall brings feels maybe like a healing dark, like a chance to go inward and reflect and to grieve and to cherish. And um, I think that the fall is offering me a chance to do some, some renewal. What you just heard from Ada just now, that's the general energy of her latest poetry collection. It's called The Hurting Kind, and it's organized around the four seasons and nature. And it's very much about how we change and also how we don't as the world keeps swirling around us. And Ada has seen a lot of change in her life recently. The deaths of loved ones, she uprooted her life to move to the middle of the country. And just this month, Ada was named the recipient of the prestigious MacArthur Fellowship. That's the so-called Genius Grant. And if you know about it, you know that it comes with a bag, $800,000 for the recipient to do with as they please, no strings attached. But one thing you will not see in her latest collection, or in much of her writing really, is her foregrounding her Latinidad. She's sometimes bristled at the suggestion that she should have to write about that, which is not to say she does not ruminate on her identity in her poetry. She just is trying to get us to think about that stuff very differently. And so in this episode, we get into all of that. These questions about identity, about why she thinks poetry matters so much right now as the world is on fire, you know what I mean? And also, what is she going to do with all that money? We started at the beginning-ish. To be honest, and it's a little bit heartbreaking, in 2021, um, all of my drafts and things got lost in a flood in the basement. And so all of the very early things that were published and all of the, you know, old original journals and drafts from graduate school and all those things are gone. It was so weird because I feel as if it should have felt a sort of immense grief over it. But there was a part of me that thought, well, that's gone. And you know what? It it's, they're not in books, so maybe in some ways they were always gone. So I asked Ada if she could read her oldest 
surviving poem from a bygone season way, way before she blew up. Centerfold. Crouched in the corner of the barn, we sat with the cedar chest splayed and the magazines laid out in perfect piles. I was the first to reach the centerfold, and together we stared. These women, these giantesses, folded over couches on bear rugs or steel bars, their bodies so slick they could slip through the pages and then through your fingers. One in particular was my favorite. With her left leg perched on a ballet bar and her hair piled around her shoulders, I thought, she must be famous. I thought how lovely it would be to be her, to be naked all the time and dancing. (laughs) Was that inspired by an actual physical magazine? Yes, yes, it was. It was a discovering um, a stack of Playboys and a friend's barn uh, and her father had hid them up, you know, from his youth and hid them Mm -hmm. in in a chest. And we were exploring doing something and, and um, we found them and we had no idea what they were, what their purpose was. And we really were so innocent that on so many levels, we really thought that it was just, they were beautiful women. Mm -hmm. And I think the poem in so many ways is, a saying goodbye to that innocence, but recognition of innocence, that in that moment that I didn't even see the woman as sexualized, but mm-hmm. the freedom of the body, of that that I thought her job was to dance naked, and I thought, how awesome that would be. <laughs> there was and nothing prurient about it, right? There was nothing. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And of course, like we think now, there's, you know, there's so many thoughts that we think about um, the dangers of pornography, about any of those things. But then there's also this level in which at its at its sort of basic core, we were both children so innocent enough that thinking that it w- would have been the coolest job in the world, which was mm-hmm. just to be to be naked and dancing. And, and in our mind, it was freedom. Do you see any of like the inchoate, what will become the Ada Limon voice in yeah. that poem? When yeah. you read it now? Yeah. Which parts sort of jump out to um, you? I mean, all of it. I think there's a level in which there's the the details of the seat, that it's a cedar chest, so then you have the sense. Um, you have the idea that we're crouched. There's the physical bodies of the girls. And then there's a level in which it, there's a turn where you think the turn could go dark that it feels like it's dangerous or that it feels as if um, it could be full of sort of scary, over-sexualized feelings. And then it actually turns into what it really was at the time, which was an innocent Mm -hmm. viewing of the female body in a way that held a lot of beauty. Mm -hmm. And... um, I think I think that voice is, is still is still in me. You once told a reporter that you started out writing poetry because you wanted to I'm gonna quote you here, find my identity 
and who I was and speak my truth and all those beautiful things you want to do in your teens and your 20s. Did then Ada <laughs> ever find what she was looking for regarding her identity through your mm-hmm. poetry? Mm, I love this question. <laughs> it's a beautiful question. Um, well, thank you. I think that I have now perhaps given up on what identity is. Huh. I don't know what it is anymore. I think that it's gone deeper or it's either gone deeper or evaporated altogether. I think that all I've ever wanted was to figure out who the original animal was Hmm. at my core. And Hmm. that has become more and more possible through my life, through my work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I am less interested in discovering an identity than I am in removing any kind of labels or identity that anyone wants to put on me. So there's this ineffable Ada mm-hmm. underneath all these layers of subjectivity, yeah. right? Yes. Um, yes. And so you're trying to get to the the quintessential mm-hmm. you. Yes. How do yeah. you know when you've gotten there? Oh, when I write a poem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's I do. <laughs> I think for me, that's that's when it happens. I've always said that for me, poems are the voice underneath the voice. And uh, that feels to me the truest, the truest self is in the poem. Huh. Maybe that's why I cannot write poetry is that I, I cannot sort of disabuse myself of mm-hmm. the, the, it seems like you are sort of saying, let me um, sort of just let go of a lot of the considerations and calculations I would make and sort mm-hmm. of just sit in the barest feeling that I have. And I just, I I feel like for a lot of us, I imagine, it's like that happens under so many layers of, this is the feeling I have. I feel guilty about the feeling I have. How do I express that feeling? There's all so, so many things that keep us from sitting with the initial feeling, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I do. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I think that that's very true. I mean, how often is our lives, you know, driven by what's next, what's needed, Mm-hmm. disappointment than the next appointment, um, us hmm. feeling like we're letting down ourselves and everyone else around us. And so many people I know feel that way all the time, um, including myself. And then for me, when I'm writing a poem and I'm really sitting in that silence and reflection and deep awareness and attention, all of that stuff goes away. And I think... Um, as soon as I'm done with a poem or the poem feels complete or I can walk away from it, the brain, of course, goes back to, oh, and now I need to do this and I have to get back to this person and mm. I must, you know, all of that. All, the list the list remains. It's not like I've somehow solved the problem of being human. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. you know, but I do think that when I am making art, I do, there, I get into a place where I can, I can let everything else go. You've talked before on our podcast about how you are not writing about race explicitly and about how people have wanted you to foreground race in your mm-hmm. poetry. Mm-hmm. Do you still feel that pressure around representation or has it even 
has the volume on it even turned up because of the firstiness, right, of your appointment as Poet Laureate and your now your prominence as a MacArthur genius? How has that changed uh, as you become a much more visible person? You know, for me, I think that there's, uh, there's so many different levels to it. We talk about finding yourself or finding your identity. And I think I'm very interested in what people want from you and what we want from ourselves hmm. and how those two worlds can be at odds at times. Um, I feel very proud of my Mexican heritage. For example, apparently, I haven't even seen this, but apparently I'm in a crossword this morning, and <laughs> um, which is incredible. Yeah, and so you made it. You've actually uh, yeah. made it, made it, yeah. And they have, um, I have been in a crossword before it's they use my first name which would make sense right because ada it's a perfect crossword name absolutely yes perfect mm -hmm. and today my husband told me that they used my last name as the clue and i don't know what it was but it made me really emotional because i kept thinking of my grandfather francisco carlos limon crossing a border from mexico struggling his whole life with feeling an outsider in a world that was very harsh towards Mexicans, toward the Mexican community, and is and remains biased and violent against the Mexican community. And then I thought, how would he feel knowing that his last name hmm. is in a crossword? And it's a small thing, right? You would think all these other things would be bigger than that. But for some reason, it was the name, the last name, divorced from myself, right? Separate from me, who I am as Ada Limon. Mm -hmm. And it was Limon. And I kept thinking, oh, Francisco Carlos Limon, like he would be so... That, that kind of representation, that means the world, you know? And I think... The biggest thing, uh, you know, I'm still writing about identity and what that means and the, and the loss of identity, the search for identity and the etherealness, the isness of being in general. But at the same time, I will never lose sight of what it is to have that or bring that representation to this world for young people. You know, when I was a poet growing up, I would search for people with accents over their last names or, you know, with an Enya or something. And I would think, right. oh, you know, I remember finding William Carlos Williams and thinking, oh, Carlos, you know. Carlos, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, you know, to have, you know, Sandra Cisneros being one of the few people, and she's done such a beautiful job of representing and upholding our community. But to to know that there were so um there were so many young people now that are being able to see our communities lifted into these roles it feels like a gift that it's not just given to me but given to our community. And that that feels big. Coming up y'all Ada talks about life as a working poet. Yes, that's a thing, apparently. <laughs> and winning the lottery that is the MacArthur Genius Grant. My fourth book, Bright Dead Things, which really was the first book to have a, a wider audience and to be nominated for the National Book Award. I sold that book for $500. Stay with us, y'all. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com slash NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Gene, just Gene this week, code switch, and I'm talking to Ada Limon. Ada is the Poet Laureate of the United States, the first Latina named to that role. She was also just named a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant, which is to say she has somehow managed to become one of the tiny, tiny handful of people who have managed to sustain themselves through writing poetry. It's not really the kind of life you can plan out, you know what I mean? And on that point, I asked her how she found out that she was a recipient of the grant and the $800,000 that comes with it. And, of course, what she was going to do with all that money. Can I ask you how you found out that you were a recipient of the MacArthur grant? Mm-hmm. What was your first reaction? Like, how does that even happen? Like, when they call baseball players and tell them they got into the Hall of Fame, <laughs> there's like a, someone knocks on your door. Like, it's a whole thing, right? Where were you? How did you feel? I love that because I'm now I'm envisioning myself as a baseball player. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, that's a, it's great. Um, well, I had just left Southern California. Um, my dear, sweet grandmother, um, Alame Barker, passed away. She was 98 years old. And I had left her. Um, I, my mother and I had been by her bedside for three days. I had just gotten home. Um, to Kentucky, got the phone call that she had passed. Mm. And then the next morning, I was getting a call from an unknown number. And like I'm sure you do, I was not going to answer this course, unknown I... number. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what the MacArthur Foundation did was actually email me and say, you know, you spoke on behalf of others in the past. Can we get you on the phone to speak on behalf of another writer? And... I said, "Oh, yeah, of course." And I I had a moment where I was I was really grieving my grandmother 
And we were quite close and she was very important to me. And I kept thinking, well, I'm not going to let someone not get the MacArthur because I'm all in my feels right now. And Mm -hmm. I need to hop on the call and make sure that I make someone else's case, you know? And so I sat down and got on the call and um, I said, who are we going to talk about? And they said, um, you know, we're sorry for the ruse, but in fact, we are calling to let you know that you are a recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship. Wow. Yeah. So you're literally in the immediate shadow of your grandmother's passing. Yeah. Are you excited? Are you, what are you feeling in that moment? Um, complete shock. Mm-hmm. I remember I'm sitting in my kitchen and no, I'm not making this up, but all day, I had been figuring out memorial plans, trying to get all the cousins there, um, and also trying to get her headstone there because I wanted to make sure that it was there when we all gathered. So my whole morning was this strange, there's no other way to put it, but the business of death. The logistics of death, yeah. The logistics of it. And Mm -hmm. in that moment, I took this time out just for this phone call thinking it would be a passing sort of how to celebrate someone else, speak in their honor. And so the breath kind of got taken away from me because I was in that place of um, next steps, next steps, next steps, grief, next steps. (laughs) And then uh, I just started weeping. I started weeping because I had this idea, and I don't know how you feel, but that this was partly from her. and it, I was going to ask you that, and I was yep, like, I wonder if it was yeah. going to sound too woo-woo. Yeah, but. yeah. You know, I'm all woo-woo. So I just, I, I, that was, it just hit me, and I just, I wept, and I kept thinking, you know, when my grandmother and my grandfather, before her passed, and they were together for 76 years. 76 um, years. 76 years. And, you know, they didn't have a lot of money, and um, my family doesn't have a lot of money. And so there there was nothing. You know, there's no inheritance. There's no, right. you know, it's like trying to figure out paying for the headstone, all those things. Like, there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking, they always talked about it, how they had wanted to leave something. And, you know, of course, we were like, it doesn't matter. It's not, you know, we don't, we don't need to leave us anything. And then there was this moment where I thought, how how did she do that? How did she do this? Um, as someone who's never thought about inheritance or had that in my mind, it just suddenly felt like, where did this come from? And wow. the answer to me was my grandma. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> um, I hate to talk about filthy lucre here, um, mm. but you just got this giant grant now, $800,000 to use however you want. Um, not to be nosy anything, <laughs> but yeah. what we spend it on, like, what do we? Yeah, it's so funny. I don't know how to answer that question because mm-hmm. I'll be very honest. Because you know, it's only the news is not that old. I, I, the only re- the only way I've been able to process it, and maybe you relate to this, is that in order to sort of move throughout the day, is just to pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, so, so this thing happened. You have this giant. 
bucket of money. You have th- this like prestige, and you're like, I'm going to disassociate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's so many things where I am a next step person. I am um, someone who likes to, you know, make sure that I'm doing the right thing by others, etc. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of threw myself into work and my existing um, commitments. And um, I think the biggest thing that I can offer to that to that question is that I have never had security. Of course, I've been saving money throughout the years as much as I can, but I just paid off my student loan debt, I think, last two years ago. My parents are amazing, but I don't have a lot of financial support because for there's sure. n- there's not a lot of financial support there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, the biggest thing is that it feels like a breath that I never had before. Huh. Do you feel unencumbered? I feel like the future has more possibilities. Huh. And I feel like it's a leaning towards a freedom. Hmm. Is that overwhelming or is that common? <laughs> um, it's both. It's interesting. Hmm. It feels overwhelming, yes, but it also feels like, oh, now... You know, I'm someone who's always worked. <laughs> I am I believe in in making art and finding solitude and all of that, but I've always been someone who's also had to make a living. So mm-hmm, sure. so there's these moments in my mind that I think, wow, maybe I could take some time off and you know, not do as many speaking events and not constantly be in an airplane and on the road and just have some time to write. And it's been a long time since I've been able to envision that for myself. And it just feels like a a doorway opening. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you majored in theater in undergrad, mm. got your MFA in poetry, um, which sounds like the setup of a like, sort of a, a stand-up routine about, like, being unemployed, but you're a working <laughs> poet. A friend of mine who, who is a poet told me how much their advance was for their first book collection, and it was maybe enough for one month's rent mm. in, like, a mid-sized American city, not even, like, you know, like a mm-hmm. a major metropolitan region. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, did you ever think you would get here? Like, No. Did you? Okay. No. No, no, no. Same with the laureate. No, I... These were things that were not on my radar. Um, my fourth book, Bright Dead Things, which uh, you know really was the first book to have a, a wider audience and to be nominated for the National Book Award, I sold that book for five hundred dollars. Wow! <laughs> so money has has not. It's not that it's been elusive to me, but I have always figured I would just work as hard as I can at what I love to do and hope in some ways the universe responds. And I did not expect this kind of response. (laughs) (laughs) How could you? How could you? It's like winning the lottery. Um, It really is. It does feel that way. Do you, when I was reading The Hurting Kind, I was struck by how much it felt like memoir. Like I felt like I was, 
like peering into your soul. <laughs> like, like, like it just felt very revealing. And obviously, you chose this form and not memoir. What do you think poetry does that memoir as a form does not do? Yeah, I have yet to to write a memoir. I'm interested in it, but I I always feel like I can say more in poetry, which is a weird thing, right? Because mm-hmm. we think if you if you honor the sentence <laughs> that prose does, that the whole point is to communicate. Now, what poetry offers to me, because it honors the line, even though the sentence is, of course, in there, but it honors the line first, it allows me to do more and speak about the liminal spaces, to speak about the unknowing. And so much of my life, and I mean, so much of all of our lives, Mm -hmm. is about the things we do not know, Mm -hmm. the things that we don't have answers for. Um. The mystery, the curiosity, the wonder, the expression of strangeness, you mm-hmm. know? I think being alive is so weird, like deeply weird. The act of living, being living in this world is strange. Like how do we process anything that we're going through? You know, I think about as as we experience the climate crisis, as we experience communities at war, mm. as we experience, you know, violence or discrimination or any kind of things that we go through in a human body. And then how do we go about just living our lives? And the next day we think, oh, I'm going to bring flowers to my my grandmother or I'm going to, you know, get a drink with a friend and and have this lovely time or, you know, it's so absurd that all of these things could happen at once. Mm-hmm. And the simultaneity of life is something that I think only a poem can contain of being human. And I think sometimes prose is a place where we go when we've kind of figured out the story, we kind of know what happened. And poetry is always saying, oh, we're never going to know what really is happening. We don't mm-hmm. know. We can only experience it. Earlier this year, um, I went to a funeral for a friend who died very suddenly. And her husband, who was also a friend, gave this eulogy, which was one of the most incredible pieces of writing that I've ever experienced. And it was even more incredible and sort of just remarkable because of the ver- like infuriatingly unfair circumstances under which he had to write it. And since, since then, I've been thinking a lot about eulogy and the burden the eulogizer is tasked with. And the poem that your collection, your latest collection, is named for is called The Hurting Con. And, it, mm. and it's a eulogy of sorts. It's about your grandfather's funeral, and you mentioned this before in this conversation, which is to say that it's really about his life and your grandmother's life and their labor and all the ways you're downstream from all of those things. And I'm not a crier, but um, this poem brought me really uncomfortably close to crying. Mm. Um, and mm. uh You've said your poems are meant to be read aloud. And so yeah. I was wondering if you would do us the honor of just reading the last parts of it, part five and part six. Um, oh, I would be honored. I would be oh. honored. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And thank you for, you know, um, I'll admit that I haven't read this since my grandmother's passing. Uh-huh. So I'm hoping that I can hold it together. Um, thank you for, thank you for trying. Yes. Okay. This is part of a longer poem called The Hurting Kind, and I'll start with part five, and we'll go to the end. Once, 
A long time ago, we sat in the carport of my grandparents' house in Redlands, now stolen by eminent domain, now the hospital parking lot. No more coyotes or caves where the coyotes would live, or the grandfather clock in the house my grandfather built, the porch above the orchard, all gone. We sat in the carport and watched the longest snake I'd ever seen undulate between the hanging succulents. They told me not to worry, that the snake had a name. The snake was called a California king. All slick black with yellow stripes like wonders wrapping around him. My grandparents, my ancestors, told me never to kill a California king benevolent as they were, equanimous like earth or sky, not toothy like the dog Chacho who barked at nearly every train whistle or road runner. Before my grandfather died, I asked him what sort of horse he had growing up. He said, just a horse, my horse. With such tenderness, it rubbed the bones in my ribs all wrong. I have always been too sensitive, a weeper from a long line of weepers. I am the hurting kind. I keep searching for proof. My grandfather carried that snake to the cactus where all sharp things could stay safe. Six. You can't sum it up, a life. I feel it moving through me. That snake, his horse Midge, sturdy and nothing special. Traveling the canyons and the tumbleweeds, hunting for rabbits before the war. My grandmother picking peaches, stealing the fruit from the orchards as she walked home. No one said it was my job to remember. I took no notes, though I've stared too long. My grandfather, before he died, would have told anyone that could listen that he was ordinary, that his life was a good one, simple. He could never understand why anyone would want to write it down. He would tell you straight up he wasn't brave, and my grandmother would tell you right now that he is busy getting the house ready for her, visiting now each night and even doing the vacuuming. I imagine she's right. It goes on and on, their story. They met in first grade in a one-room schoolhouse. I could have started their story there. But it is endless and ongoing. All of this is a conjuring. I will not stop the reporting of attachments. There is evidence everywhere. There's a tree over his grave now, and soon her grave too though she is tough and says, if I ever die, which is marvelous and maybe why she's still alive. I see the tree above the grave and think, I'm wearing my heart on my leaves, my heart on my leaves. Love ends, but what if it doesn't?
Thank you so, so much for that. Um, give me a second, sorry. Um, one second, one second. Thank you for doing that. I know it was not easy for you to read. Um, and No, it was, it was that line about that she was still alive, and I kept thinking, God, I, I really thought she was going to live forever. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Mm-hmm. Isn't that funny? We all know that we're mortal, and I thought she was going to live forever. Aiden Limon is the Poet Laureate of the United States. She's the first person to ever serve two terms as the U.S. Poet Laureate. And she's a newly named MacArthur Fellow. Her latest collection of poetry is called The Hurting Con. And that poem is the eponymous poem from that book. Ada, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you so much for having me. All right, y'all. That's our show. You can follow us on Instagram at NPR Code Switch. If email is more your jam, ours is codeswitch at npr.org. And subscribe to the podcast on the NPR app or wherever it is you get your podcast. And please sign up for the newsletter at npr.org slash codeswitch newsletter. It's really, really dope. You'll really like it. And real quick, we got to shout out our Code Switch Plus listeners. We appreciate y'all. And thank you for being subscribers. When you subscribe to Code Switch Plus, you get to listen to all of our episodes with no sponsor breaks. And it also helps support our show. We appreciate you. So if you love our work, if you rock with us, please consider signing up at plus.npr.org slash Code Switch. This episode was produced by Christina Kala. It was edited by Leah Danella. Our engineer was Margaret Luthor. And we'd be remiss if we did not shout out the rest of the Code Switch Massive. That's Dahlia Mortada, Jess Kung, Courtney Stein, Verilyn Williams, Lori Lizaraga, B.A. Parker, Xavier Lopez, and Steve Drummond. As for me, I'm Gene Demby. Be easy, y'all. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and T-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash NPR and use code NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Homes.com. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? These are all things parents ask when they home shop. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. OCI is the platform for database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive at oracle.com slash NPR.